This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where a budget stalemate between the House and Senate will force the 2020 legislative session into overtime. The governor says it's no big thing. And then there were three. Another case of coronavirus in Florida. It's the sister of a woman who recently returned from northern Italy and is now hospitalized for the illness. The Florida Senate votes to right an old wrong by compensating a Jacksonville man who spent 43 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. Opponents of bills that would gut the citizens' initiative process claim Republican lawmakers are trying to protect their own power and silence their opponents by making it just about impossible for average folk to put a constitutional amendment on the Florida ballot. Super Tuesday is now history, and our guests today on the Sunrise Interview are Steve Vancor and Peter Schorsch, who will try to make sense out of the presidential primaries. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events, and we'll check in with Florida Man, including one guy who mooned an entire restaurant, and another who runs a ministry called Hot Dogs for Hope, and is now facing, well, shall we say, weenie-related charges. And now, the top stories on Sunrise, for Wednesday, March 4th. Florida lawmakers only have to do one thing each year, that's pass a state budget. And guess what they will not be able to get done on time this year? Speaker Jose Oliva broke the news to the House at the start of Tuesday's floor session. We are not currently in budget conference. Therefore, it is now inevitable that we will go long in session. The extent of that ex uh, extension is yet unknowable. But we are confident we're working closely with our partners in the Senate to bridge the gaps between us that uh, can get us into allocations and then into conference. So we're confident that we can get it done. But as of this moment, we are extending at the very least a day or two. That's a quick update, and I will keep you updated as uh, events happen. It may sound bad, but honestly, it's standard operating procedure. Lawmakers have a long history of budget brinksmanship, and they don't mind going into overtime when it suits their purposes. The new budget doesn't take effect until July 1st, so no one involved in the process is really concerned about a delay right now. It's simply one of those games lawmakers love to play, and Governor Ron DeSantis says it's no big deal. So what I've told both leaders is um, do a good job. Let's just do a good job. I think we've got a lot of great stuff in the pipeline here. I think we have a chance to exceed what we did last session. And um, you know, I think the people in Florida, they wanna see us doing big things on education, environment, economic, all these great things. Um, and if you do that three days after the end of session and have to extend a few days, that's not gonna be the end of the world. So I'd rather them do it right, um, take the time to get it done. I mean, we have a number of great things in the hopper, uh, budget obviously still being negotiated. You have a potential you know, gambling discussions going on to try to get the tribe uh, in agreement with the tribe. Um, and I think that you know, Bill Galvano's done a good job working on that. I think there's a good chance that, that we get some. I hope we get a, get a deal there. But again, I'd rather have a good deal and do it you know, a few days later, or even you can even bring people back potentially than try to force things. One of the biggest sticking points in the current budget drama is Visit Florida, the state's tourism marketing agency. The Senate wants to fund it to the tune of $50 million. The House wants to abolish it. There are now three confirmed cases of coronavirus in the Sunshine State. Governor DeSantis says she is related to one of the first victims. We received, uh, which we expected, a presumptive positive test for COVID-19. That's going to be confirmed by the CDC. Um, and it is the sister of the young female who traveled back from Italy. She was also traveling back. She has been in isolation since uh, this was all identified. Um, and again, that was something that was, um, that was contemplated. Um, there is uh, a roommate, uh, in addition to the sister, who is in, self is in isolation, has not been symptomatic yet, but obviously that's something that's monitored. 
in terms of the gentleman who was in Sarasota, he uh, so he was in contact with a number of healthcare professionals. Um, you have some that have been determined medium to slash high risk of transmission, others low. Uh, there are four tests currently outstanding, so we've not received the positive yet. Um, but obviously, once we get those information, we will. Worldwide, more than 92,000 people have been infected by coronavirus. More than 3,100 have died. Here in the States, more than 100 cases have been confirmed, and there have been six fatalities, all of them in the state of Washington. It's a rare day when state lawmakers have the chance to apologize for a past injustice and try to make things right. So it was a special moment in time when the Florida Senate took up a bill to compensate a man who was sent to death row and spent 43 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Senator Audrey Gibson sponsored the bill on behalf of Clifford Williams. This is the bill related to and for the relief of Clifford Williams and providing an appropriation to compensate him for being wrongfully incarcerated for 40 plus years. This has been an emotional journey for me um, as I personally met uh, Mr. Williams before I decided to file the claims bill. It was very important that I did that. Um, and I had some conversations with he, his family, attorneys. When I, when I met him, he was all smiles and not a bitter sense at all. And I found that to be so encouraging and so uplifting for someone who spent 43 years of their life incarcerated for something that they did not do. I can't even imagine what's that like, what that would be like. I cannot. And so I decided that I would file the claims bill because I didn't have to, but I wanted to because it was the right thing to do. And when we make a mistake as a state, we have a duty to fix it. Today, senators, we have an opportunity to help Mr. Clifford Williams continue to assimilate back into his community into our society. We cannot give him back his time, but we can certainly help him to move forward. He deserves that opportunity. He really does. Leader Gibson, thank you for your tremendous work on this issue, and thank you for bringing this justice to the Senate chamber. Madam Secretary, unlock the board. Senators proceed to vote. All senators voted. All senators voted. Lock the board and record the vote. 40 yeas, zero nays, Mr. President. Show the bill passes. Leader Gibson, for what purpose? For an introduction, Mr. President. You are recognized. Thank you, Mr. President. Senators, today with us in the West Gallery is Mr. Clifford Williams. Please stand. Welcome to the Florida Senate. When the House approves the bill, Williams will be paid $2,150,000. That's 50 grand for every year he was locked away. Lawmakers have spent the past 20 years in Florida trying to make it harder for average citizens to change the state constitution, and they are at it again this year. Bills are teed up in the House and Senate to put new restrictions on the citizens' initiative process, and Jonathan Weber with Florida Conservation Voters is crying foul. His group led the drive for passage of the Florida Water and Land Conservation Initiative in 2014. I can tell you that the decision to pursue a citizen's initiative is not one that organizations make lightly, but when the legislature is unwilling or incapable of moving the ball forward on important policy questions, when it refuses to respond to the needs of Florida citizens, many find that they have no choice. 
Thankfully, the Florida Constitution includes a section for exactly this reason. The anti-citizens initiative bills before us in this session in the Florida legislature only serve one purpose, and that is to make it more difficult for citizens and grassroots organizations to access the ballot. That's it. The citizen initiative was created to bypass state lawmakers, giving people a chance to change the Constitution when the legislature thumbed its nose at the public. Floridians have voted for legislative term limits, smaller class sizes, a higher minimum wage, medical marijuana, restoring rights of former felons, making public education a priority, and protecting our land and water. All of those ideas were opposed by the political establishment in Tallahassee at the time, so Representative Fentrice Driscoll says GOP leaders are now trying to pull the plug on citizens' initiatives completely. The voters' right to participate directly in our democracy is protected by Florida's Constitution. However, some of our colleagues are trying to make it even harder for ballot measures to succeed. And they're doing it as fast as possible with as little input as possible. Their goal is clear. Make the citizen initiative process too daunting and too expensive for everyday Floridians to even try. Now, amending the Florida Constitution shouldn't be easy. But these proposals will make it practically impossible for everyday citizens and grassroots movements to amend the Constitution to make our lives better. The League of Women Voters is responsible for one of those amendments, the one prohibiting gerrymandering when lawmakers draw new legislative districts every 10 years. Trish Neely with the League says that would not be possible under the new restrictions. When the will of the legislators is contradictory to the will of the people, or when the Constitution, we the people ordained and established, no longer serves us as written, we have the ability to launch a citizen initiative. And no, the League does not believe it should be easy, but we also believe it should not be impossible. Mm -hmm. Several bills, steamrolling, and I mean steamrolling through session, will make the citizen initiative so daunting, so expensive, only millionaires and special interests will try. But let's be clear, the bills don't restrict constitutional amendments by legislators. These bills are terrible for democracy and disrespectful of the important role Floridians play. We ask, why is it so important to silence our voice? Back when she was in college, Representative Anna Eskimani gathered signatures for the Land and Water Conservation Amendment. But if the legislature passes these new restrictions, she says billionaires will be the only ones who will be able to afford to put a citizen's amendment on the ballot. The reality is that this process will be made inaccessible to everyday people, but major corporations will still have the power, much like they have the power in this building to control our lawmakers based on political contributions. And there's a clear line between the interests that don't like the issues we're talking about, whether it's water conservation, rights restoration, medical cannabis, $15 minimum wage. There's major special interests who are opposed to these concepts that the majority of Floridians want and vote for that we see come to this building where efforts are made to stifle them. Um, and that's why today I've actually filed an amendment um, that would change today's bill to be titled Bout Initiative for Billionaires, <laughs> because that's exactly what these efforts would do. The Reverend Joe Paramore with Faith in Public Life says lawmakers who support the new restrictions on initiatives are trying to silence the public, and he went biblical on them. See if you can find the quote from Ezekiel, chapter 10. The past couple of legislative sessions have proven that these chambers disregard our constitutional liberties and our guaranteed equal civil and political rights to all. As a matter of fact, the legislation that's moving seeks to further impede the process 
of democracy by the silencing of the voice of millions of Floridians. Woe to those who legislate evil and to those who constantly advocate for unjust and oppressive decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor people of their rightful claims to make the widows their loot and to steal from the orphans. To this body, we will not be silenced. Lawmakers often complain that citizens' initiatives are cluttering the state constitution, but over the years, it's the legislature that has been responsible for about 80% of the amendments that appear on the ballot. Next up on the Sunrise Interview, we talk with resident pollster and pundit Steve Vancor, along with Florida politics publisher Peter Schorsch, who will try to make sense out of the numbers for the presidential candidates on Super Tuesday. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. We all know that guy who says he knew Trump was going to win long before election night. Had he known about Predict It, he could have put his money where his mouth was and made a little extra cash in the process. Predict It is like the stock market for politics. You can buy and sell shares in future events and elections, both foreign and domestic. During the 2018 midterms, Predict It beat other national pollsters like Nate Silver in election night predictions, and it wasn't even close. It's easy and only costs a few bucks to get started. Sunrise listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting predictit.org slash promo slash F-L-A-P-O-L. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guests today are pollster Steve Vancor, who's checking in from Tallahassee. Welcome, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we also welcome Florida politics publisher Peter Shores, who's joining us from St. Petersburg. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Uh, a nice. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we've done this yet. We're, we're we're scratching our legs here on sunrise. Yeah, it's our first. I, I, wait, wait, wait! I hear the crowds cheering in the background. They're cheering for. Wait, wait for Joe Biden. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a way to start with our first three-way, huh? So Super Tuesday, the most pivotal day of the presidential primary calendar. More than thirteen hundred delegates at stake, and that's you know fourteen states, one territory today holding or. or Tuesday holding nominating contest. So, Peter, what's your take so far? No person who has ever captured the most delegates on Super Tuesday has ever gone on to lose their party's nomination. The big fear was Sanders was going to Bernie Sanders was going to capture the most delegates. He was going to clean up in California, clean up in Texas, and yes, Biden would have some momentum, but he still wouldn't be able to overcome the couple of hundred uh, delegate lead that Sanders would have amassed. What is shocking to all of us tonight is that not only is uh, Joe Biden going to um, cut into Bernie Sanders' uh, lead here, he may end up getting ahead of Bernie Sanders in delegates by the time California is done counting at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. Where he, we may be, he may be better than 50, 50 delegates ahead when all is said and done. We said on this podcast that Joe Biden in the first uh, three states had done a remarkable job of underperforming the polls. Right now, he is crushing the polls. I mean, it's a competitive race. It'll be a delegate split in Texas, a state that Sanders was expected to clean up. Sanders was doing a victory lap in Massachusetts. That's going to look like a delegate split when all is said and done. Hold on, that's a huge one there, Steve. That's a huge one. I, I mean... You and I talked about this going into it. Don't just blow by Massachusetts. Bernie Sanders was just up there. He was talking about running up his delegate score. He was taunting Elizabeth Warren. And now Joe Biden is going to beat not only Bernie Sanders, but Elizabeth Warren. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but Joe Biden's not from Massachusetts. He's not <laughs> from a state right next to Massachusetts. And somehow he may pull off an upset in, you know, for, uh, enemy territory there. Yeah, no. And, you know, the other big one, I think, is Minnesota, where 40 percent of the votes were cast when Klobuchar was, you know, peaking, and he's crushing it in Minnesota as well. And, you know, the objective for Joe Biden tonight was to close the gap on the delegates. Uh, he clearly has outperformed that. He has, he has moved into, I'm sorry to put it any other way, there's no other way to say it, but he is now, I think, the front runner in this. And, and that's because everybody else has collapsed. Go back to Minnesota for a second. You know I play the, the, the predictions market. At the start of the day, Joe Biden was a 4% chance to win Minnesota. Everybody thought there was actually a better shot of Klobuchar out of the race. Nate Silver, Nate Silver was still giving her 5-1 to one odds today. And so somehow Joe Biden got all of that vote, got enough all election day vote. And I think that's – all right, so let's go back to a state that was called early, Virginia. I was watching Steve Kornacki, and I don't know what the final numbers are going to be at. And we have to kind of caution everything that we're saying that maybe it will be up, upended. We're we're doing a little something different tonight, talking at 10, 11 o'clock at night. Things could change by 6 in the morning. What, what won't change but is Joe I, Biden's above 50%. Steve Kornacki said that turnout in Virginia was double what it was in 2016. So that the idea, the narrative all along has been that Bernie Sanders would be the one energizing voters to turn out. Well, wait a second. What if that narrative, along with all the polling, has been turned out? And somehow it's Joe Biden, Mr. Electability. Maybe he's turning out people to vote. No, turnout seems to be high everywhere. Uh, And where Joe Biden is winning, he's winning with big margins. Where um, uh, Bernie Sanders is winning, he's winning with smaller margins. And that's going to be what's reflected in the delegate count when all is said and done. And Biden is winning, you know, across the geographic board, not just by state, but when you look into the states, he's winning in the urban areas and the suburban areas and for what it is in in Democratic primary, the rural areas as well. So uh, and I think he's picking up what votes would have gone to Bloomberg. Bloomberg, for a quarter of a billion dollars spent, will come away with about 10 percent market share in this. And I would would be stunned. I think I well, I mean, just on TV, right? Just on TV, just in Super Tuesday states, he spent a quarter of a billion dollars. Yeah, and I don't is uh, does, right, does he so, stay, Peter? Does he stay? So NBC News, as we're taping this, is reporting that he is going to reassess his campaign in the morning uh, when he the data comes for. in. <laughs> because he needs an exit strategy at this point. And listen, you know, Michael Bloomberg, maybe he did a maybe he did a service to his party or to the party and to his country. He said, I'm only going to get into the race if it looks like Joe Biden is not viable. He got into the race when Joe Biden wasn't viable. But somehow, not somehow, Jim Clyburn made Joe Biden viable again. And now, you know, Michael Bloomberg has to face a very tough you know, decision. And he has to do it in a face-saving way. Listen, he doesn't want to you know, wake up tomorrow and be taunted by the president of the United States. Maybe he's got, you know, $65 billion to uh, soften that blow. But I think he's got to make a... Very hard decision not to uh, not to campaign and contest Florida, where I think he is probably still strong. Just not to campaign and contest in Pennsylvania, where he's also strong. But he needs to give Biden a clear shot at running up a delegate count against Sanders. Because hey, listen, but, but how, how do you stay? In, how do you stay in, Peter? How do you stay in 
if you had a Super Tuesday strategy, you spent ha- you spent almost what Obama spent the entire campaign. I mean, half of what it was, it was a billion dollar campaign. You spend a half a billion dollars, a quarter of a billion on it on one day, and you come away with ten percent. And then your night that night, you say, "I got to reassess." Reassess is code for we're going to get out with grace. As as goes America and Samoa, so goes the nation. Uh, <laughs> Michael Bloomberg is going to come away with, you know, not all, not only Michael Bloomberg but uh, Tulsi Gabbard. She won one delegate from American Samoa, so you know what that means. She does get to speak in Arizona at the convention. That's what's going to be so completely awkward. Somebody that's viewed as a as either a Russian plant or a Republican plant by you know the rest of the Democratic Party. She's going to be able to get up there and give a, uh, a speech at the convention. But going back to Bloomberg, I want to talk about another. I kind of say, is it is she a bigger loser here? Is Elizabeth Warren even more disappointing? And what's happened here? No, the expectations expectations were very... But the expectations going into today were that Warren was continuing to fade. By the way, it's it's not in Arizona, it's in Milwaukee, but go ahead. (laughs) Three months ago, she was the frontrunner. She had eclipsed Bernie Sanders, um, and she was occupying that progressive lane. And there was talk that, you know, she had built... I remember a great article by Peter Hamby of, of Vanity Fair, who's one of my favorite writers right now. He had said, you know, that Elizabeth Warren had built the best campaign. She had built it brick by brick. She had been laying out policy proposals. Um, and, man, she is going to come away with certainly less delegates than Bloomberg at this point. I can't believe she's going to end up fourth or fifth here. And I'll tell you, I don't know that she's going to quit yet. I think she's going to – I think somebody's going to have to get a hold of her and tell her, hey, listen, we've we got to come together here. Wait a second. It could be worse for her. She may have left herself vulnerable in her home state. I mean, she's looking at a third-place finish in her home yeah. state. What does that tell you? I mean, when you said about Sanders going up and kind of taunting her, what he said was, you can't wall off your state. I'm here to play. I think I'm going to take it from you, you know. And here's, he did. Did she block Sanders? I mean, is that... You know, uh, did, no. the, the chessboard pieces were here. Where did she occupy a little bit of his progressive space? Because clearly, I don't, I don't the, know the answer to that. Going into tonight, it, the thought was Bloomberg was going to block Biden. That you were going to see a lot of forty for Sanders, twenty five for Biden, twenties for Bloomberg, and that that's not what's happened here. It's turned out to be forty five for Biden, twenty five for Sanders, and Bloomberg is you know, uh, flirting with not being above that 15% threshold, which, again, I'm just amazed by that. So here's here's going forward, I see a problem for the Democrats. If Bernie Sanders, if they go to convention and Bernie Sanders doesn't win, which looks, to the, tonight, as we sit here, looks probable that it's Biden's, right? Then the young voters who you desperately need to, to win are going to be disillusioned and will stay home like they did, you know, like they've done before, or they did for Hillary. If Sanders somehow picks it up, if I'm a black voter in America, I'm a little mad here that my guy that we launched through Carolina, South Carolina, and Super Tuesday. So you got these two bases of your party, and they're almost you know antagonistic to each other based on the candidates. How they reconcile that to focus on who they should be focusing on is, is their enemy, is Donald Trump, is really going to be the narrative that will drive this election going forward, I think. 
I mean, so obviously, Trump, who gets who gets above the number? Is Trump the second biggest winner other than Biden tonight? I mean, with coming out of Super Tuesday, with basically no, a, no, it had just been a Bernie Sanders sweep. This would have been a big win for this would have been a big win for Trump. He would have loved that because I, I agree. The, I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was on the conference call, uh, or I listened in on the conference call with the Florida GOP tonight. DeSantis came on there, and he said, you know, they are giving Trump exactly what they want. Listen, they're going to have a broker convention here unless, you know, unless Sanders gets out. Assuming Biden somehow passes by Sanders and continues to build this, and Sanders doesn't go away, we will. I don't think. Biden gets to the magical number still. I, I don't think it's not possible because it's not winner take all anywhere, right? It's it's you know the fifteen percent threshold goes away as Warren probably drops out, Bloomberg drops out, and it becomes a two person race. Uh, but so still, so Biden not being able to lock into you know the money and the apparatus of the national party, um, you know that's going to be that is really going to handicap him. The only thing that can save him then is. Will Bloomberg, you know, will Bloomberg become the bank of Bloomberg and, you know, bankroll the Democratic Party? I mean, as you know, most of his staff is paid or at least contracted through November. He has told people that have gone to work for his presidential campaign, hey, listen, even if I don't make it past next week, you're set through November. You get to keep the iPad I gave you. You get to keep the iPhone I gave you. Um, he's got basically the, the infrastructure of the Democratic Party right now. So he's not going to pull a Jeff Green? Is that what you're saying? Oh, please don't. All right. I know poor Rick, he's not saying anything because uh, we'll tell our listeners he's got a, a nasty dog bite. I'm sure he's got a lot of opinions on this one. All right. Let's just let's lock this down, Steve. Is Bloomberg in the race still by Florida, which is going to no. be two weeks? From, all right. So no. he's out? No. He's too logical. He has spent too much money. He put all of his money into Super Tuesday. And on election night, when you say I'm going to reassess my campaign and you're looking at 10 percent market share, reassess equates I'm going to get out. Is um, is Warren still in the race for the foreseeable future? I don't know. I don't know. I think she likes the attention. I, I don't know. Yeah, it kind of does matter. It matters to Sanders. I don't know that she gives. I don't know that Bernie Sanders gets all of the Elizabeth Warren vote. Democrats don't generally think like that. So, no, I, I, I don't know. I can't say, but she's going to do She should get out and let it be a two-person I'll, I'll close it with this. Tough question for you. A lot of these state polls are really off. They are right on the directional, but they are vastly um, under uh, uh, actually, it's not. It's not a. It's not a tough question for me because, as you know, I have been the, the standing on every mountaintop saying the polls we consume are media-driven polls that are done on the cheap. They're not often balanced. And remember, polls are not predictors. I think we're looking at polls that are two and three weeks old in many cases. And Joe Biden has had a legitimate fourth quarter comeback. He's surging, and so many dynamics change. No, this is this when did is we not get a Ryan polling Tyson on this phone call? When did he jump on? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you know what. Think about it. The whole Nate Silver five thirty eight model was based on, or not whole, but so much yeah. of it is based on polling pre South Carolina. I mean, and this is where I'll close. I don't know that we have ever seen as dramatic a turn of events. In a presidential primary, other than somebody like like a Gary Hart getting 
you know, going from front runner to out. I don't no, remember absent, absent, absent and meteor smashing into somebody's campaign. You've never seen this kind of comeback. Look, I was part of the part of the gang saying, Joe, you've underperformed in three consecutive races. You need to get out and make way for Michael Bloomberg. Then comes the Michael Bloomberg disaster of a debate. And then he gets hit on Me Too stuff. Then he gets hit on Black Lives Matter stuff. And in the Democratic primary, it was a one, two, three punch. He couldn't take it. 10%. He should get out. And I think he hey, was. guys, I got to get going. I got to go All pick right. up Steve's sales, dry cleaning, wash his car, get everything done for him, whatever he needs <laughs> over the next couple of weeks. Um, all right, guys. So thank, I'm going to let yeah. you all go. In, and inside show for an inside podcast. <laughs> thank you very much, both gentlemen. Hey, let's do this again in the night of the Florida primary. Your calendar of events begins at 9 a.m. That's when House Democratic Leader Keone McGee and Senator Randolph Bracey will host a press conference to call for reforms regarding the arrest of young children in Florida. The Senate has a floor session beginning at 10. The House meets at 1030. The Florida Supreme Court meets at 9. They'll hear arguments in four cases, including a long-running dispute between the Florida Bar and a Miami-Dade County firm that helps motorists fight traffic tickets. The Florida Citrus Commission meets at 9 in Bartow to review a contract for consumer marketing. A state task force working on the proposed Southwest Central Florida Connector, a toll road going from Polk to Collier Counties, will meet at 10 o'clock in Sebring. The Florida Public Service Commission will hold an event in Bay County at 10 to inform consumers about utility scams. It's part of National Consumer Protection Week. The Florida Commission on the Status of Women is holding a conference call at 4. And the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission gathers at 6 tonight in Melbourne for the latest in a series of meetings to get feedback on a draft rule to try to reduce the risk of chronic wasting disease being spread throughout Florida. And it's time once again for the misadventures of Florida Man. Deputies in Clay County say a Florida man mooned the breakfast crowd at a diner in Middleburg as he was escorted out of the building. According to the arrest report, the 23-year-old man went to the restaurant to collect his wife's paycheck and was eventually asked to leave for causing a disturbance. On the way out, witnesses say he dropped his pants and flashed everyone inside. He's charged with indecent exposure and breach of peace. Finally, a Florida man who runs a faith-based ministry called Hot Dogs for Hope is charged with sex crimes. Michael Lincolnauger is jailed in Jacksonville, where he's accused of having sex with a boy and admitting it to the child's mother. The arrest report says he even told the woman he had done worse things to others. Lincolnauger is charged with sexual battery, lewd and lascivious conduct, and exhibition, and police are asking any other potential victims to come forward. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.